We have been in a series now, uh, all, all of the year going kind of through the scriptures, through the, um, through the Bible stories, of the, you know, starting with the Hebrew scriptures because they came first. And we've been, in the last few weeks, we've been in the book of Judges in a little series that we've been calling The Rescuers. And it's basically been taking place in the time of the judges because the people who were judges or deliverers, they were rescuers. And so we wanted to see their story. And um, as we've read this together, um, we are wrapping up the book of Judges today. Now, we're not wrapping up the time period of the Judges. The Judges' time period is going to continue beyond this week. Some of the things that happen after the book of Judges are done happen in the same era but are written about separately. So we're going to see a little bit more um, as we shift from the, the rescuers period into the monarchy period of Israel eventually. But right now we're going to wrap up the book of Judges today. And I'm going to warn you that the story I'm going to tell you today is, is pretty gruesome. Okay, so if this was a TV, if this was turned into, this was turned into a movie or a television series uh, or something you'd watch on, on video, today's story is TVMA. Just letting you know that, okay? It is like NSFW, not safe for worship. I don't know, something, I don't know. But it's, it's, it's going to be, um, today's story is gritty. It's, it's, it's one of the grittiest stories in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. It's, it's tough. And um, we're going to tell it. And I almost didn't do it. I almost skipped it. Because, you know, why would we tell it? Here's the funny part. If you've, not funny, but interesting, if you've never read through your Bible, if you've ever read the Hebrew scriptures specifically, you've probably never heard the story I'm going to tell today. Because it's not the kind of story you tend to tell in a, in a, in a service like this. So if you haven't read it, you probably haven't heard it. And, and I, th I thought to myself, you know, why would, we, why would we do a service around, focus on it in a service? But then I asked the question, why is it in the Hebrew Scriptures? Why is it there? And obviously it's there because it's a piece of their history. It's a part of their transition period as they transition from, from you, know, you know, the time of the, of the judges and the deliverers and they move towards this, the monarchy era that's coming next. It's a very important part. In fact, it's going to set up the stories that we're going to get into the next couple of weeks where God begins to pivot and work in some serious ways because as you'll see today, something needed fixing. So the day's story is twisted and it's dark and, you know, that's why we, uh, I'm glad if you're here right now that your kids are in the kids program because you're, they have a lot of questions afterwards otherwise because here comes. Um, anyhow, um, I'm going to skip some of this section here, but I wanted to sh share the story for a lot of reasons. One is it illustrates how bad things were, leading to a pivotal moment in Israel's story. And then it's going to help us see a character that we're going to meet in the next couple of weeks in our, in, our, in our journey. But also, we did not plan for it to go this way, but as it turns out, we're doing this on July 4th weekend. I didn't plan it. We just, you know, we've had some off weeks and some extra services. It just happened to be that this story came up and I'm kind of glad because as we celebrate our nation's birthday, is a chance for some of us to, to think about this in, a, in our own nation's terms. Because for many of us, we, we look around today and we're like, Arlen, you know, as we celebrate our nation's independence, it's bad out there, Arlen. It's bad. It's, it's bad in the world today. Maybe politically, you know, you're ha unhappy with the politics. Usually your happiness with the politics depends on if your team is in control of the, of the political landscape or not. So it's better or worse depending on if my, my team is winning or losing at that particular weird season which it always changes. Or, you know, it's the culture wars that we're upset about, or it's um, maybe we're just always kind of bothered because the news, the 24-hour news cycle and the social media always has us stirred up real bad. And I get that. But I want to remind us that no matter how bad you may think the state of our country is today, it's been bad before in our country. I love to teach U.S. history. I don't have time to get into a rant about this, but everything that you can possibly imagine, we've been dealing with this for 250 years. I mean, people are people. It's just, we forget that. But honestly, it's been kind of messed up in this world a lot longer than our nation's been around, like since the beginning. So if you, if you think that somehow this is like everything's going to, you know, down the drain, it's been crazy in the world of humans for a very long time. And today's story is like 3,200 years ago, and it's pretty messed up. And I'm just warning you, it's going to be tense today. Let's get into the story because i got a lot to cover. And I, I, I want to start by this last section of the book of Judges, this last section no longer talks about any of the rescuers like Samson and Gideon and Deborah. It pivots to 
to talk about just how chaotic the nation was. And it, a pivotal verse is found in Judges 17, verse 6, where it says, Judges 17, 6, um, in those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. So this is an interesting statement. So in other words, they had no king. In other words, there was no central authority in Israel. They used to have leadership like Moses when they first came out of slavery, kind of helping them, someone they can look to in their, in their journey. They used to have Joshua when they came into the land of Canaan, but those men are gone. And, and, and during this time, they've settled into their land, they have their territories, but the 12 tribes of Israel have no central leadership and so everyone's just kind of doing their own thing. It's kind of like as we think about our nation's independence this weekend, we think about how that when our nation first won its independence in the late 1700s, that they didn't want to have centralized government because every state wanted or colony wanted to have their own individuality and their own states' rights. So we had, a, for the first 12 years, a confederation uh, to have no central authority. But it didn't work out very well, if you remember, because um, it, it was hard to do cross-border currencies and it was hard to deal international strength. So at some point they had to concede to become a United States, but there's always that tension. Well, Israel's in that same section. They're in the land of Israel now. They've settled down, but there's no central authority. And every tribe and every clan within every tribe is just doing whatever seems right to them. And, and that verse on the screen, is that, that statement is kind of in every single chapter of the rest of the book of Judges. Something like that is said over and over again to help us understand how chaotic it is. Now, I wanted to tell you a story, and I, as I practiced this sermon, I realized that this is taking way too long. The sermon's going to take way too long. And so I was going to tell you a three- or four-minute version of what happens in Judges 17 and 18 around the story of a person whose name is Micah. Because it's interesting. But I just don't even have three or four extra minutes because we're going to be pushing the time boundaries today as it is. So I'm going to encourage you to go home this week and read Judges 17 and 18. You won't want to read the next story after that because we're going to tell it today. And that's going to be enough for you to ever hear from that again. But the Judges 17 and 18 story, you should go home and read it because it kind of shows you how messed up things were. And I'm going to have to skip that one. I'm going to skip it to go to a crazier, more messed up story that you've probably never heard in church, or unless you've read your Bible, you've probably never seen it before. But it illustrates something that I want to come back to in our personal lives at the end. So buckle up and let's go. Judges 19 verse 1 begins by saying this. Now in those days, Israel had no king. There's that statement again. It keeps reminding us throughout this section that there was no central, that things were kind of messed up, Okay. It says, there was a man from the tribe of Levi. So Levi is a tribe within Israel, the nation of Israel. A man from the tribe of Levi who lived in the remote area of the hill country of Ephraim. That's another tribe of Israel. So this man's living there in Ephraim. One day he brought home a woman from Bethlehem. Bethlehem, some of you know in the Christian world, sometime later, 1,200 years later, is when Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. This, this, 1,200 years earlier, this woman lived in Bethlehem. And this Levite living in Ephraim brought her home to be his concubine. And I, don't have, I don't have time to explain the nuance, but basically it's his wife. Uh, the word wife or concubine, she, he's called her husband. It doesn't matter, just the word in the, in the transition here is concubine, and that, you get the idea. They're a couple. It says in verse 2, but she became angry with him and returned to her father's home in Bethlehem. I don't know what he did to anger her to make her go back home to daddy. I don't know what he did. Maybe he cheated on her. Maybe he physically was abusive or verbally abusive. Maybe he just left his dirty socks on the floor all the time, no matter how many times she told him to pick them up. Or maybe she was just, you know, an angry person herself. I don't know who to point to. All I know is that she goes home after a few months back to dad's house. And it says that after about four months, her husband set out for Bethlehem to speak personally to her and to persuade her to come back. So I don't know why he didn't go right away, why he waited four months. Perhaps he wanted to let her cool down for a while, or perhaps he wasn't sure he wanted her back, unless he eventually got lonely and changed his mind. But whatever reason, after four months, he travels to Bethlehem to bring her back home with him. He took with him a servant and a pair of donkeys. When he arrived at her father's house, her father saw him and welcomed him. So whatever went down between this couple, the dad's just glad to see the guy show up. Oh, good, you're back for my daughter. I don't know, um, he welcomes him. 
Her father urged him to stay a while, so he stayed three days eating, drinking, and sleeping there. So at the end of these three days, the man's going to leave, and the dad's got this whole plan. You know how some of you know how this goes in your family. He's like, hey, let's stay, stay to lunch, you know, at least stay for lunch, you know. So then after lunch, he's like, well, you know, it's getting late in the day. You don't want to travel now. Might as well stay the night again. The next morning, well, stay for lunch, you know. You might as well stay for lunch. And then after lunch, well, you know, it's getting kind of late in the day. You might as well stay until the... And so it, he keeps dragging this out. And finally, after a few days of that, this guy's like, look, we got to go. So it's, it's, it's after lunch. He's like, we're leaving now. And they take off. And as they travel back towards home, it says it was late in the day when they neared Jebus. And the man's servant said to him, let's stop at this Jebusite town and spend the night there. So there's this, remember, Israel settling down in this land, but there's always other nations and people who were there before and other towns all around them kind of interwoven a little bit, kind of a messy landscape. And they come to a town on their way back that is a Jebusite town. It's not an Israel town. So, but they're like, hey, let's stop here. There's a good Airbnb in town. We can stop at here and stay the night and, and continue our journey the next day. But... Uh, the Levi, his master, said, no, we can't stay in this foreign town where there are no Israelites. Instead, we'll go on to Gibeah. In other words, he's like, look, I don't trust these people. They're not one of us. I don't know, how I don't know if I trust people who aren't one of us. You know, maybe there's a little prejudice or something involved. He's like, you never know what's going to happen in a Jebusite town. I'd feel more comfortable and I'd feel more safe if we went a little further down the road and came to a town of Israel because, well, we'd be just, be, they'd be our own people. I feel safer there. So they decide to continue their journey. Verse 14, so they went on, and the sun was setting as they came to Gibeah, a town in the land of Benjamin. So they stopped there to spend the night. Now, Gibeah in, in, the, in the tribe of Benjamin has a lot of towns within each tribe. This is Gibeah. They stopped there. They rested in the town square, but no one took them in for the night. Now, that's an interesting statement. No one takes them in. Like, for example, they could have, um, I don't know, given them a place to stay. They could have, I don't know, they could have been hospitable. I imagine you go to the town square when you come into a town like that to, to see if there's any posted you know, notes about looking for work or places to stay. If you go to town square, that's where someone's going to find you and you're going to make your connections. But, but no one offers them a place to stay. They're just sitting in the middle of the town square as the, the night comes on. That evening, an old man came home from his work in the fields. He was from the hill country of Ephraim, but he was living in Gibeah where people were from the tribe of Benjamin. So in other words, this old man comes in from his field. He happens to be from the same area of Ephraim that this Levite is living in. And he, but he's living in this area, working in the field, staying there, has a house there. When he saw the travelers sitting in the town square, he asked them where they were from and where they were going. Well, we've been in Bethlehem and Judah, the man replied, and we are on our way to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim, which is my home. No way, that's my home too. Yeah, what a coincidence. What, a, what, a, what an odd meeting, you know? Yeah. Well, he says, I've traveled to Bethlehem, and now I'm returning home. But no one has taken us in for the night. Even though we have everything we need, we have straw and feed for our donkeys. We have plenty of bread and wine for ourselves. We don't need much. We just need a place to stay. But no one's given us a place to stay. Hey, you are welcome to stay with me, the old man said. I will give you anything you might need, but whatever you do, don't spend the night in the square. Now that just sounds ominous, doesn't it? Whatever you do, don't spend the night in the square. Now maybe he was just, you know, maybe that was ominous. Or maybe he was just saying, hey, no, come with me, but you can't sleep out here. Either way, he's saying, let's go home. Okay. So he took them home with him, and he fed the donkeys. And after they washed their feet, they ate and drank Together, And the story should end here. They check out the next day, head back to Ephraim, and they live happily ever after. Here is where things get really, really messed up. Here's where it gets very dark. While they were enjoying themselves, a crowd of troublemakers from the town surrounded the house. 
they began beating at the door and shouting to the old man, bring out the man who is staying with you so we can have sex with him. Now, can I just back up for a minute here? So in the story, these people were probably leaving them on the streets in the middle of the city because they were, they were waiting for night to, to assault them, to assault, to assault these guests. But now, someone took them in. Maybe that's why no one was willing to take them in because they didn't want to cause trouble because they knew there was trouble in the town. I don't know. But they found where they were staying. They went to this guy's house and they're pounding on his door surrounding him. They feel like they're threatened. And they said, send this guy out. Not so that we can take him out and wine him and dine him and, and, and make a connection with him and see if he's romantically interested in us too. No. They're like, we are going to assault him. We are going to rape him. We're going to go, we're good old-fashioned it's the same stuff that happened in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, quite honestly. It's when people came into town and they said, we're going to rape the visitors. And it's, it's one of the greatest evils that we ever deal with in the world today is anytime you see people go, getting abused by others without consent. Non-consensual sexual, sexual assault it happens way too often. They're like, send this guy out. We're going to do what we're going to do to him. Whether you know, It doesn't matter. We're going to rape him. Pretty savage plan. Apparently, everyone else was going to be okay. But send him out. The old man stepped outside to talk to them. No, my brothers, don't do such an evil thing. For this man is a guest in my house. And such a thing would be shameful. It's a shame. It's always a shame to take someone and violate them and force against their will and, and mistreat them. You can't assault this person. No. They're a guest in my house. We're from the same town. Can't do it. Sounds like he's trying to defend them even in a tense situation. And it sounds good until the next verse. He says, here, take my virgin daughter and this man's concubine. I'll bring them, them out to you and you can abuse them and do whatever you like. But don't do such a shameful thing to this man. You're like, what? What? Like, do these, these girls not count? Well, of course not. Look, we've said this before and we'll say it again. This was a time period in history and there's still places like this in the world today, unfortunately, but especially back then, it was a man's world. And women were treated, and we've said this before, we don't have time to get down that rabbit trail, but like property, very transactional, that's just how, that was, that's how the world was back then. And so in this person's mind, you know, take these girls, I mean, you know, just take my daughter, take this guy's, you know, woman, and just abuse them any way you want. You know, because who cares? But, but not my buddy. Leave my buddy alone. I say we're from the same town. Hey, listen, you know, the good old boys club here, we're going to protect him. We don't really care if you assault them. It's messed up. But so goes the world today, sometimes. The, um, it says, but they would not listen to him. This is so sad. So the Levite took hold of his concubine. And pushed her out the door. Now, I want you just to understand what's happening here. In other words, he's taking a hold of her, means she's not going out there willingly. He's grabbing her, kicking and screaming. Please don't, what, I don't know what you're doing. And he takes her and drags her to the door. It opens up and pushes her out. Now, here's the it's insane part. He's a Levite. Couldn't he, I don't know. Was God to take care of this thing? Or, or couldn't he say, well, you know what? One of us is going to get savaged and victimized today. They, don't, they didn't ask for her. They didn't ask for anyone in the house but him. I'll go out there and trust God with my own danger. I'll go out and put myself in harm's way. Instead, he's like, no. I'm going I'm to take someone. They're not, even, they're not even here to go after. I'm going to take someone else. The woman I'm supposed to protect. No wonder she left him for her father's house. It sounds like there's some serious issues going on with this guy. I'm going to take her and I'm going to shove her outside and say, I don't care about her well-being. Just leave me alone. And out she goes. He says, the men of the town abused her all night, taking turns raping her until the morning. That's very heavy stuff, folks. Finally, at dawn, they let her go. When you read that story, it's just, it's angering. It's troubling. It's cruel. At daybreak, the woman returned to the house where her husband was staying. She collapsed at the door of the house and lay there until it was light. 
When her husband opened the door to leave, there lay his concubine with her hands on the threshold. So he, she managed in her battered estate to come into the house and collapse on the doorstep and grab her. He opens the door, she's grabbing hold of the threshold, just laying there. He said, get up, let's go. <laughs> the compassion's overwhelming. Get up, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Folks, she was dead. She, 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 they, they abused her to death. She lay there in the morning, and by the time he, he, they came out to the house, she was laying outside of the security of the locked door until she died. So he put her body on his donkey, and he took her home. As messed up as it is, and it's messed up, I would love to say that it starts getting better, but this is also pretty gruesome, I'm warning you, so here goes. When he got home, he took a knife and cut his concubine's body into 12 pieces. Then he sent one piece to each tribe throughout the, all the territory of Israel. So every tribe of Israel got a delivery. And the delivery was a, 12, a big chunk of this woman's cut up body. Gruesome and disgusting and vile as that would be to, to receive. With obviously some kind of a note attached explaining roughly what's going on. It's brutal. And you know what he's doing, don't you? He's, he, he's, he's stirring the pot right now. He is, he, is, he is pushing. He's like, this happened to me, and I, I won't stand for what happened to me. Well, what was going to happen to you, you let it happen to your wife. Okay, whatever. Um, but now you're, now you're all righteously going to stir the pot. So he's going to he send this, this thing to everybody. And everyone's so shocked when they see it. And as you would be, wouldn't you? It says, everyone who saw it said, such a horrible crime has not been committed in all the time since Israel left Egypt. Think about it. What are we going to do? Who's going to speak up? They said, since we have been freed from slavery a few generations ago or so, we've never seen an atrocity like this one. What are we going to do about it? And his savage mail delivery did its job. What happens next is that Every tribe comes, they send representatives to meet this man and say, what happened? And he tells them the story of what happened at Gibeah. And they're all so worked up, and he's done such a good job with his dramatic gift, that they head back home and say to every one of their tribes, all, every tribe of Israel is going to gather 10% of our men and take up military arms, and we're going to go to the town of Gibeah, and we're going to destroy everyone there. I mean, think about this, everyone there. Whatever those people did, the whole town deserves to be destroyed. We're going to take everyone there. We're going to, wipe, we're going to kill them all. Let's go. And they all gather this army. And when they get there, they send word to the tribe of Benjamin. Now remember, Benjamin is one of the tribes of Israel. Benjamin also got this gory male delivery, this cut up woman's body. But, but Benjamin, Benjamin that, that city of Gibeah belonged to them. It was one of their cities and their tribe. But they didn't send soldiers. They didn't come to, to deal with it. Because now they have the rest of the nation showing up saying, what are you going to do, Benjamin? We're here. Send your men. Help us. We're going to tear down this city of yours. And Benjamin makes a strategic decision right here to do what a lot of us have probably done in our lives at some point, where you have that person in your family or your circle that you don't think is right and you don't agree with them or whatever. But when outsiders pick on them, you circle around your own. Well, well, Benjamin's going to sit there and say, well, we're, not, we're embarrassed by what Gibeah did. We don't like it. But who do the rest of you think you are to come here? There's no king in the land. Who are you going to come here and pick on one of our cities? Mind your own business over there. You guys, your army marching into our land to pick on one of our cities? We don't care what they did. We're not going to have it. So they formed, they got every soldier they had in Benjamin, and they marched to, to Gibeah to defend the audacity of the rest of the nation, forming an army and to try to police them. And they said, we're going to fight. And what breaks out next is a full-on civil war. It's a civil war. I mean, and there's been a lot of civil wars through the years, but this was Israel's first. I mean, it's bad. I mean, the people of Israel, the, the, the majority of them who are there, they, 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 they're so convinced that they're right. They pray, you know, because it's easy to pray when you think you're right. And God, should we attack? I think God's saying we should attack. So they charge into the city, and they lose. Like 22,000 uh, soldiers from Israel get killed that day. And they come back and they say, I thought we're doing the right thing. I know we're right. I'm sure, I'm sure we're right. Let's pray about it some more. I think God's saying to attack them again. So they attack them a second time. And 18,000 more people get, men get killed on their side. And they're just weeping and saying, why are we losing? I know we're right. 
They praise the more. They, I think God wants us to attack again. They attack again. But this time they send some people around the city at night to hide out in the brush and wait. In the daytime, the main army comes at the city. And when the Benjamin, tribe of Benjamin comes to fight them, they begin to retreat like usual. As they are chased out into the fields further, the people who were hiding behind came from behind, bust into the city, attack the city, attack the backside of uh, the soldiers of Benjamin. And they win this time. And the, Benjamin, the people of Benjamin are just butchered. And though the other group suffered more casualties, in excess of 40,000 plus people died in the one side, Benjamin, the smaller force defending their own city, is butchered. It says in Judges 20, verse 46, on that day, the tribe of Benjamin lost 25,000 strong warriors armed with swords, leaving only 600 men who escaped to the Rock of Rimmon, where they lived for four months. So somehow 600 men escape the battle in the chaos and get away and they hide out in the rocks and they're living there until things calm down. Every other man in the nation of Benjamin gathered for this war, every able-bodied soldier, and they're all dead. And what's going to happen next is just the same story we've been reading. A bunch of bad choices, ex, you know, extrapolated by overreactions. And it's what happens at the, at the end of most wars, unfortunately. It's what happens at the end of most, um, most uh, conflicts. If we look back at our own, our own nation's history, the United States, and we look back to the Civil War, if you've ever studied the history of the Civil War, you know, the North and the South, and the, the Union Army was bigger, but it suffered a lot more casualties early. I felt like it was losing more people, but it, in the end, by, by its vastness, it prevailed. But what happens at the end of a Civil War or any war is, is the losers, well, they lost. And the winners sometimes, the better angels don't prevail sometimes. Sometimes the winners, and, 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 you know, they're so upset. There's such bloodlust in them over the fact that they had to fight and win. That once they win, they crush cruelty and, and just crush the people they defeated. It's kind of like Sherman's march to the sea after the uh, Civil War when he went from Georgia to the sea and burned every house and field all along the way because they're so angry at the South for the war and they're the winners. It's the same thing here. Sometimes the bloodlust and the anger of war spills over. And so sure enough, it says that, and the Israelites, this is terrible, folks, the Israelites returned and slaughtered every living thing in all the towns, the people, the livestock, and everything they found. And they also burned down all the towns they came to. Folks, did you just read that? I know it's just a story, but listen. They went through the entire tribe of Benjamin to every town, who, by the way, has no more men to defend them because they just killed them all in battle. The last 600 survivors were hiding out for their lives. They went to every single town of Benjamin, walked in, and killed every single person in that town. The older men, too, or, or younger men, too young to, or old to fight. The women, the children. They butchered the livestock. They decided they're so angry, they wiped out an entire tribe of people. Countless numbers of people at the edge of their sword. In their righteous indignation at the end of the Civil War. Now, afterwards, they get to calm down for a while. So Judges 21 says, The Israelites had vowed at Mizpah, We will never give our daughter in marriage, daughters in marriage to, the man, to a man from the tribe of Benjamin. So somewhere in the middle of their anger, they made this vow, We'll never let them have one of our daughters in marriage. But now they've realized they've wiped out an entire tribe, and there's these 600 survivors that they don't know about. But what do you do when you're one of 600 survivors of Benjamin and there's no more women to marry because you killed them all? Because the people in their anger killed them all. There's no future. Those men are just going to get old and die, and the tribe is gone. And no one, unless they marry somebody, and the Israelites are like, we're not giving our daughters. We made a vow we wouldn't in the middle of our heated battle. And so it says, now all the people went to Bethel, and they sat in the presence of God until evening, weeping loudly and bitterly. The bitterness of war is setting in. And they prayed, oh, Lord God of Israel, they cried out, why has this happened in Israel? Why is one of our, now one of our tribes is missing? Well, I know why this happened. Because something really messed up went down, and y'all went on a war, blood, a blood path. Are you asking God, why has this happened in Israel? You, you know the answer. You're the reason this happened in Israel. 
Now one of our tribes is missing. They're all in distraught. And like, what are we going to do? These men need wives, but we made a vow. And this is the weirdest thing to me. Like all of a sudden the people are going to get principled. We have a principles. We can't violate our vow. We wouldn't give our daughters and them to marriage. You know, now they're principled. Apparently they didn't mind, you know, killing men, women, and children and burning cities down. That was okay. But, you know, we can't give these, you know, we made a promise, you know. So they're, they're going to hold the line here and say, we've got to do something else so these Benjamin men can get married. And this is messed up. I wish I, was, I wish I was done telling you messed up stuff, but I'm not. Because what they did next was to say, well, where can we find some wives for these men? They said, does anyone from our 11 tribes who went to war against Gibeah, any, any city not send soldiers to help us? Did not send men to help us in the war? And they looked around and said, well, yeah, no one from Jabesh Gilead came by to, to fight the battle. They like, really? Well, they should have joined us in our anger and our war. So they just said, well, that's where we're going to get these guys some wives. So it says in verse number 10, they assembly sent 12,000 of their best warriors to Jabesh Gilead, folks, with orders to kill everyone there, including women and children. Why? What did, these, what did they do? What did these people do? Did they do something bad at Gibeah? No, they just, they didn't do anything wrong. They just did, they stayed out of the civil war. But bless God, you should have been on our side. So they're going to go to this town and kill every man, woman, and child. Destroy everybody. This is what you are to do, they said. Completely destroy all the males and every woman who's not a virgin. I mean, how do you even, I don't, never mind. Among the residents of Jabesh Gilead, they found 400 young, this is messed up, 400 young virgins who had never slept with a man, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh in the land of Canaan. They said, well, I found these girls, these young women. And, we, you know, hey, soldiers, we didn't really ask them if they wanted to come. We killed their family anyhow. They're yours now. Repropagate. We just killed their whole family anyhow. They had nowhere else to go. It's messed up. But then there still wasn't enough. There was 200 more soldiers that didn't have wives. and like, we got to help these guys. You know, we have to help them. It's our mission to help them. We'll burn out other towns to help them. You're the ones who killed their women and kids earlier. You don't got about helping them. But okay, sure. So now they had to do something else. And so then, verse 19, they thought of the annual festival of the Lord in Shiloh. So apparently every year they went to a festival of the Lord. This is a reminder to me and to you <laughs> throughout history of the world, including today, that people can be very devoutly religious and still pretty messed up. Like, hey, we got our religious festival. I mean, you can go to church. You can read your Bible. I read my Bible. Did you read your Bible? I mean, I, could, I have my religious customs and be a pretty messed up person. It shouldn't be. God, God, God teaches us better, but you can play the God game and still be pretty messed up. And these guys here, they're going to go to a religious festival after all the terrible things that you just read about happening. And as they're there, they said, they told the men of Benjamin who still needed wives, go hide in the vineyards near where we're celebrating our religious customs here. When you see the young women of Shiloh come out for their dances, rush out from the vineyards, and each of you can take one of them home to the land of Benjamin to be your wife. If you don't have a wife yet, when our young girls go out, our young and married girls go out to dance in the fields, we're all celebrating and eating and drinking, go out there and just grab one. Don't worry about it, just take one, you know. We can make more girls, you know. Just take one, bring her back home, and, 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 and figure, figure this out. And they said, when their fathers and their brothers come to us in protest, we'll tell them, oh, no, please be sympathetic. Let them have your daughters. For we didn't find them any wives when we destroyed, enough for, when we destroyed Jabez Gilead. And, and you're not guilty of breaking the vow, since, you know, that important vow, since you did not actually give them to your daughters to them in marriage. So let them do this. So the men of Benjamin did as they were told. Each man caught the woman as, she, women as, she, as they danced in celebration carried her off to be his wife, and they returned to their own land, and they rebuilt their towns and lived in them. This is a Bible story. Okay. I mean, folks, this whole thing is really dark. And I did, like I said, almost, you know, some of you would never have never known it was in there if you didn't read it, so now you do. But here's the thing. What, what a hot mess. And we're going to pivot. Here's, here's the good news. This, this whole thing is setting up. These, even the story that we skipped earlier about a guy named Micah 
in this Airbnb that we skipped about that you should read it when you go home. All the story that we talked about is, is telling us how bad things were so that we can see that God begins to usher in a new era. And, and, and the next thing that happens after this book of Judges is God beginning to, to turn. He's doing something in the middle of the mess. He's going to bring in an important figure in a couple of weeks who's going to lead them out of this era into a better one. But before we get to those lessons, and I think when we get there, you can appreciate how much they needed some divine intervention. But as we get ready to transition for today, I want to leave that story with us because I want us to stop and think about what in the flipping world is going on here. And it's summarized at the very end of Judges. Verse 20, chapter 21, verse 25, the same verse we read earlier is repeated again. In those days, Israel had no king, no central authority. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Not what was good. They didn't do what was good. They did what was right. I don't know, I'm just doing what's right. The problem with doing what's right is we all like to have our own version of what's right. And you know what's right, by the way, is what I think is right because I'm spiritual. So therefore, whatever seemed right it seems right to me. In my eyes, everyone just operated that way. And that's why this, this mayhem is happening. It's just a messed up time. And it's a reminder to me and to you, hopefully, that one evil deed can lead to so much of a mess. When you look at what happened at Gibeah at the beginning of the messed up story, the people who did this, they didn't care if it was right or wrong. But I, I doubt they had any idea of the fullness of the repercussions of that one action. And that happens to all of us sometimes. Whenever you, we get tempted to do something that we know is wrong, but we don't care, the problem is we usually think, well, th th here's the short-term consequences that might happen, but maybe not. I'll take my chances. But we, most of the time, we fail to understand the long-term fallout, the ripple effect of, 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 of wicked choices in life. Be very careful what you do because most of our life choices have reverberating after effects. But also the story reminds me that our reaction, or can I say our overreaction, to what's wrong around us can also have massive, massive repercussions. As I've often said, our circumstances don't usually destroy us, but our reaction to them sure can. And what's happening in the story is is the people. It was bad what happened, but instead of saying, well, we should like send some ambassadors, talk to the tribe of Benjamin, get to the bottom of this, deal with that, it turns into one guy butchering his woman's body parts up and getting everyone stirred up, and then let's just go burn a sound down, and then let's, let's defend our own. And let's, oh, how dare you? We'll destroy all of your cities. Oh, yeah, we'll destroy the city who didn't come help us because they should have helped us. It just was one reaction and overreaction after another until you're left with shambles and death and devastation, the kind of which would be hard to watch on the big screen. Just telling the story and trying to picture it in our minds is difficult enough. So, before we move into the next part of the story of Israel, and it gets better, thankfully. I want to apply this to us a few, couple minutes today. Do you think it's bad today? You say, oh, it's bad, and you know, we're celebrating our nation's birthday, and I'll tell you what, I don't even know how I feel about things because of my, you know, the political disagreements I have, depending on who I like and don't like, or the culture wars, things are so messed up in the culture today. What's a person supposed to do? Here's the thing. It's always been bad, folks. There has been a problem in the hearts of men for a very long time. We told a pretty brutal story from 3,200 years ago today. And we can go a lot further back than that and find similar ones that we didn't even, some of them we skipped. It's just been the story of humanity and, and messed up people who follow their own will into terrible wrong actions and overreactions to actions. It's been messed up a long time. But here's the thing that I want to call you and me to remember today. Is that while that's not good, we should remember that we have some good news in the middle of it all. The word gospel that we preach, it means good news. And I think some of us have forgotten that we have good news in, in, in this world. Here's the good news. We have a rescuer. Talk about the rescuers in the series. We have a rescuer. Like, like way back before this story even took place, God had foretold that he was sending a Messiah into the world to be a Savior. And they looked ahead to the coming Messiah. Like we look back to him and we celebrate that God stepped into our world and instead of doing this, instead of, over, uh, instead of reacting to our sin by saying, I will crush you, God steps into our mess and says, I will redeem you. Instead of 
reacting to us in a harsh way like the story today, Jesus steps in and says, let me show you that I will sacrifice. I will bear your wrongs. I will take down the temperature in the room. I will suffer the consequences of what you've done wrong to build a better path forward so that we can have a relationship with each other and you can have life. And the whole Christian message is countercultural to this kind of behavior. And we have a rescuer and we all have hope. Not because we're perfect, but because God is so good to us. We have a king. We have a king, not in our nation here. Our, we have leaders that come and go. But we have a king as Jesus followers. And he's the prince of peace. And we ought to step back sometime and say, there's not always peace around us, but there should certainly be peace in us. And I'll tell you why there's not. It's because our eyes are focused on all the messed up stuff around us. And I'm saying today it was messed up a long time ago. But if you read all the 24-hour news cycles, if you read all the, if you get all your favorite bloggers on social media who are meant to stir the pot, you know, you could be very, we could be Jesus followers or religious people who are worked up real bad about how messed up the world is today. But when we do that and then we overreact in our anger or our frustration or our pride, when we overreact, all we end up doing is adding to the problems around us. Tell me where in a story like this the reactions made things any better. Whenever we overreact to the problems around us, we just add to the problems around us. And we overreact because we have our eyes on the wrong things. We get our eyes off of our king and his model for us and what he's done for us, the peace that that brings us and the good news that that gives us a mandate to live out. And we start to do whatever seems right in our own eyes. And if it seems right in my eyes, it must be right because I'm a good God-fearing person. I go to church. I read the Bible and pray. So if it seems right to me, it must be right. My, my indignation must be righteous indignation. My reactions must be righteous reactions because we get our eyes off of our king and do what we think is right when our buttons get pushed. And by the way, as we enter July 4th week, we think about our nation a little bit. The reason we overreact so often is because there are people out there who just push our buttons so well they stir the pot. It's like the guy in the story. He knew how to get the mob to attack. You know how he did it? He cut the girl's body up in 12 parts and sent it everywhere. He knew what would push buttons. You know what I call him? If he was alive today, he'd just be a blogger. He'd be, he'd be on a 24-hour news cycle. He'd be having a following. You know that no, no civil cool heads are that famous in the world? Like today, in today's culture, if you're a person that says, let's bring the temperature down, let's bring the temperature down, a lot of sane people are like, thank you. But you want to get a following? You want to get fame and fortune? You get to the radical ends of all the issues and you stir up the anger pot. That's where all the action happens. That's where the money is made. That's where the followings happen. Outrage. And those who peddle it to stir the pot, well, it works for them. And if, if we're not careful, we're the kind of Jesus followers who are always plugged into people who know how to push all of our buttons and keep us always upset and ready to fight till we have another civil war. And I think a better plan is for us as Jesus followers to look at what Jesus showed us. We have a king. Get our eyes on him. We have a better message, a greater calling, and something larger to strive for. So I'm going to close today. I need to close quickly because we have a few things to do. I want to close with reading you another passage of Scripture because I don't want to leave off with that last one. So we're going to move into the Christian Scriptures for a few minutes to a letter written by a man named the Apostle Paul who wrote to the Romans in the book of Romans. And to understand how important what I'm saying is today as we wrap this up is Paul was once, you don't miss this or you'll miss the point. Paul was once a religious man a religious man who read the scriptures. All they had back then, there were, there were no Christian scriptures even penned yet. All they had was the Hebrew scriptures. And he read them. He knew them. He studied them. He was a man of faith, a religious man. And he went around in his zeal doing what seemed right to him was to beat people who did God the wrong way in his mind. If you did worship the wrong way, we're going to beat you. We're going to put you in prison. And sometimes we're going to have you executed. Why would you do that? Because I'm right. I can do bad things because I'm doing it in God's name. So Paul was part of that. But one day he encountered the person of Jesus Christ. And when he did, Paul had this whole experience where he saw that God sent his son 
not to come down and, and, and behave that way, but to serve and to sacrifice and to lay down his life, to not pick up a sword, to when he's a falsely accused, to not open his mouth and to let people take advantage of him and to die. And, and Jesus just looked like a loser when he was hanging on the cross and his enemies prevailed. But he rose again the third day and showed us that there's more to this life than just this life. And he started something that's been transforming the world ever since. And when Paul saw that and understood the bigger picture of what God's doing, he stopped behaving the way his old religious self used to behave and started following Jesus. And he writes a letter to the church at Rome because the Christians in Rome were living in a cesspool. Rome was a messed up, wicked, vile city, morally and dangerously. Many Christians would be put to death there. And Paul writes to these Jesus followers and says, hey guys, Here's your message, and here's how he does his letter. The first 11 chapters, he's like, look what God has done for us. Look what Jesus did for us. And he pivots in chapter 12 by saying, because of God's mercies, I beg you to give your bodies a living sacrifice. It's your reasonable service. He says, don't be conformed to the way this world operates. That's vicious and vile and angry and brutal. Instead, you be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I've seen people take those verses and twist them any which way they want to in church. But you want to know what he's trying to say to them in that, in that chapter? Read the rest of the chapter in context. The rest of the chapter, he basically explains how to get along with people at odds with us. Can I show you part of it real quick and we'll go home? Well, we'll go to eat burgers. Romans 12, 17. Paul says, never pay back evil with more evil. But Arlen, you got to fight fire with fire. That's how you got to do it, don't you know? I mean, listen, we've, we've tried being nice, meek people all along, but anymore, you got to get in the, down in the dirt and you got to fight dirty to win the, the dirty fight. Because my, my people who are against me politically or in culture wars, they're not fighting fair. You got you to fight fire with fire. No, never pay back evil with more evil. Stop being part of the system of chaos. Paul says, do things in such a way that everyone can see that you are honorable. Here's a hard one, verse 18. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Oh, and I know, I've been around people, I know how that goes. Well, I've done all I can do. I don't think so. I've done all I can do, that's all. I've stand all I can stand and I can't stand no more. Sure. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, Never take revenge. I'm not anyone's doormat. I'm going to do what I got to do. No, no, listen. Let's calm the pride down. Don't take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. Let God do his job. For the scriptures say, I'll take revenge. I'll pay the back, says the Lord. Well, what am I supposed to do in the meantime? Just sit here and, you know, good question. Here's the answer. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, good, starve them out, then they'll be weak and you can crush them while they're weak and hungry. No, that's not what it says, I'm sorry. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. Why would I feed my enemies? I'm not, they deserve, I mean, I didn't starve them. If God starves them, that's just their just desserts. so oh well. No, actually, step in and feed them, fix their problem, help them in crisis. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Why? In doing this, you'll heap burning coals of shame on their heads. In other words, here's the Jesus following way. Paul says, and this is a complicated statement, but here's what he says. We have been trying our entire world's history, religious or not religious, humanistically or in the name of God, people have been trying their whole lives to fight back, to crush their enemies, to win, to punch harder. We've tried all the stuff of the world. We saw it in the story today, and it never ends good for anybody. But here's what he said. Jesus showed us a different path that actually makes a long-term difference. And yes, when he's hanging on the cross and his enemies are mocking him, it looks like he lost and they won. And you might think, I'm not going to go that easily. Bless God, I got my rights. Or, you can look ahead and say that Jesus wasn't playing this world's game. He had a bigger game in mind. And he said, go ahead. I won't fight back. I'll serve you. I'll let you do to me what the world does to each other. Think me as a threat and destroy me. But when he died and rose again, 
his followers who understood what he was about did the same thing. And all the early church apostles, including Paul, would eventually die, not with weapons in their hands, not fighting for their cause and their faction, not defending their right to arms even, simply preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. Wall persecuted to death. And you say, well, that's a losing strategy, is it? I think it changed the world. Because last I checked, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the, all around the globe today, people are gathering to worship in the name of Jesus. I think what he did had a lasting impact. But I know that for us, we want to do something right now in our pride, in our overreactions. But Paul says there's a better way. You don't fight evil with evil. You don't be wrong to people because they're wrong. What do we do, Arlen? Well, I'm going to give you a closing statement. And my closing statement is not one that we crafted for you. It's a verse from Paul. Paul's going to give us our closing statement at the end of this chapter. Here's what he says. Don't let evil conquer you. In other words, don't let this way of this world infiltrate your life. Does that mean don't let it become part of your DNA? Don't get caught up in the ways or let it overcome you. Don't let it become a part of you oper your modus operandus is the same kind of mess that you live in. No. You conquer evil by doing good. Well, I don't about good, but I'm right. Are you? I know we all think we are. Oh, I'm right. I'm sure of it. I'm a godly person. Okay. But it's not by doing, being right. It's by good. Not by being good, but doing good. By doing good in a world that's not always good. By doing good in a world that doesn't reciprocate. By doing good to people who've done bad to you. It's really kind of messed up. But Paul says, I used to be one of those other people. And then Jesus showed me a different way. And we will conquer evil by doing good. So, well, was that going to work out by next Tuesday? No. But you need to play a long game. And realize that the real world has been transformed for the better by people who play away from the world's rules and follow the teachings of Jesus. So we're done. I'm going to wrap this up. I've got to land this plane. It's late. But here's what I want to say to you. We'll move on. We'll get past judges. We'll enter some really cool stories to show God pivoting the nation of Israel into a new era the next couple of weeks. But for today, can I encourage you to be followers of Jesus?